Father, a moment in your presence is better than 10,000. And we'd rather be doorkeepers in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Father, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And Father, we thank you for systems that are being transformed even by the presence of the Lord. Father, we thank you for neurological disorders that are being adjusted today. Circulatory systems that are being opened up today. In Jesus' name. Father, nagging pains and swellings that are going down and being eliminated in Jesus' name in the joints. Hallelujah. And in the organs. In the name of Jesus today. Touch, Lord, all over this sanctuary. Not only touch, but heal, cure, make whole. In the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Do a work in us and to us so that you can indeed do a work through us in Jesus' name. Ah, welcome, welcome, welcome. Give us wisdom now for tonight and bright hope for our tomorrows. For you know the thoughts you have towards us. They are thoughts of good to give us a hope and a future. And Father, I just thank you for the release of hope in people's lives. And Father, now broaden our hope, not just for us and for our families, but Father, for the community of faith and for the communities in which we live. For this, we give you thanksgiving. For this, we give you praise in Jesus' name. To your name be glory. To your name be honor. To your name be praise. In Jesus' name. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, give the Lord another show of your appreciation tonight. In the name of Jesus, he is the most high God. Thank you, Lord God. Nothing's too hard for him. Nothing's too difficult for him. Nothing's impossible with him. Thank you, Lord God. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth, and there's nothing too hard for you. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord God. Amen. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord and in the company of God's saints. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Sister Allen, for a tremendous time of ministry. Amen. In Jesus' name, would you show your appreciation also there? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. We've been laboring in Deuteronomy chapter six and verse number four, and I'll ask you to join me there. And in his presence, in this kind of atmosphere, the Lord can do all kinds of things. And as we were singing, how great is thy God, the greatness of God, when it's declared in the sanctuary, announced that there's nothing too hard for him, nothing impossible with him, nothing too difficult for him. And so when we sing those songs, uh, and worship him as a great God. Believe him for the impossible in those moments. Amen. For when we declare the greatness of God, his greatness is manifest in the midst of us. He is a mighty God. And many of us are, path, are facing uh, conditions and events and circumstances in our lives today. That with man, it seems like it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible to those that do believe. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And also, could you find verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse number 4? Four. 6-4 four is where we are, Deuteronomy. 
And here we find this word written. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words which I command thee this day shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And it shall be that when the Lord thy God brings you into the land that he sworn to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large, beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of goods which you did not feel, hewed out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you've eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. We've looked at this text. We've said that in this particular text, God this time, instead of speaking to an individual, is speaking to the community here, O Israel. And God is an individual God, but he also is a communal God. He says, here, O Israel, he is speaking to the community. Up until now, we've seen God speak unto Moses. We've seen him speak unto Noah. We've seen him speak unto Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, confirming covenant with them. We have seen him speak uh, unto Joseph and now Moses. But now he says, hear, O Israel. And we said there's not only an individual word, but there's also a communal word. Shema is the word here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Said that God speaks to the community, and I think it's important when we live in America, which is a land of rugged individualism, manifest destiny, free enterprise, and we value the right of the individual, that God not only is a God that is a personal God, but he's also a God of the community. So he speaks to the community. Not only speaks to the community, but we looked at how God speaks to the community, and God sets forth, if you will, systems to cause community operate as the city of our God. He sets forth a sacred system that passes on the values that God gives the community to the next generation in Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13 that we have already read and studied. We, he gives us a governmental community in Deuteronomy 18, uh, 18 through 20, 18, 18 through 20, where it helps to govern in a just way without partiality, free of bribes, Justice to distribute God's goods and services to all of the people because he wants it to go well with all. God also sets in place an economic system in Deuteronomy 6 and verse number 10 through 12. That's a system of abundance that we just read. And he wants it to profit with all. He did all of these things, Deuteronomy 6, 3 says, so that it might go well with all. God just doesn't want individuals in the community blessed. He wants it to go well with all. Deuteronomy 17, then, that we looked at, also says that God was over and against debt, but he is for abundance. God is for forgiveness of debt, but at the same time, he says, I want you to remember the poor and the needy. 
What is God's plan if these systems get out of line, if the sacred system begins to experience failure, and if the government begins to experience failure in the economic system? God then appoints prophets. And prophets' responsibility was to speak to the systems and to call those systems back in the order of God. Prophets today prophesy a lot of things concerning natural things, but the prophets in the Bible, contextually, wherever you found a prophet, you found a governmental leader. It was in the king of, it was in the year the king of died, I also saw the Lord said Isaiah. And contextualization is critical. Because where you find a prophet, you find a king. And the prophet spoke to the governments to bring them back in order, also to the priests and to the economic dealings of the people. We asked the question last night, what was God's plan in passing on these uh, this righteous standard to the next generation? And parents are critical to it. For Deuteronomy that we just read, he told the parents, you shall teach these things diligently to your children and to your grandchildren. And parents, teen, is a lot more than just having babies. I've discovered parenting is not for children and parenting is not for cowards. God does not call you to be your child's friend. He calls you to be their parent. Get some adults for your friend. But parenting is a different matter. Parenting Our responsibility is to develop the will, the plan, and the purpose of God and instill it into our children. We listed messages that need to be resent. And the last verse that we read last night, he says, Remind your children that I am the Lord God that brought them out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. And we talked about Pharaoh's narrative, which was a narrative of fear and anxiety and scarcity and, and, and fear and lack. But then at the same time, there's God's narrative, which is a narrative of abundance, a narrative of life, a narrative of love and a narrative of hope. And regularly throughout the Old Testament, both in the Torah, in the Psalms, in the writings and also in the prophets, he keeps reminding them. Now, remember, I am the Lord that brought you out of that repetitious information from credible sources that was always instilling fear and anxiety. That was always instilling inside of you scarcity and lack. And also it produced monopoly and fear. Now, what is God's plan further to build community? One of God's plan when systems fail, we read in Ezekiel 22 and 30, if you'll join me there, is that God expects his people to call out his name over the community when the community begins to be in failure. And Ezekiel chapter 22, we have an entire chapter that we looked at uh, a few nights ago, Sunday night, what happens when systems go into failure. And whenever the systems go into failure, and in Deuteronomy 22 from 23 to 30, we found out that everybody began to fail. We found out that the prophets begin to fail, the priests begin to fail, that the princes that oversaw the economic system in verse number 27 became like wolves and they were preying on the poor and on the least and on the, on the youngest and on the weak and on the oldest. We saw that our prophets had, had martyred the people with mortar that was untested. We saw that even the people, when the priest and when the economic system and when the government system fail, even the people begin to commit oppression in verse number 29. And what was God's solution? 
And God said, I sought for a man, someone among them that would make up a wall and would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. God is always looking for someone to pray. God is looking for someone to call on him. And friends, in this hour, I believe that God's house needs to be called a house of prayer. God's house needs to be called a house of prayer. And friends, calling his house a house of prayer during this hour is critical. Now, why does it need to be called a house of prayer? Because our prayers and our incense must go up to the Lord on behalf of the city. You see, prayer without action does nothing. Some people act and never pray. They produce things that don't last long. Some people pray and never act. They don't produce anything. What would happen if we got prayer and action together? Nehemiah could have prayed a long time, but if he never went in and talked to the king, got the resources and went back to his city to rebuild the wall, nothing would have happened. But then he could have gathered all these resources without prayer and fasting, went back to a city and no telling what he would have built. And so we need the combination of prayer and action. Look again with me in first Timothy chapter two, because we'd like to talk tonight about building community, praying for your city, building community, praying for your city in first Timothy chapter two. I find this interesting word. Paul is writing to his son, Timothy. And in this text that we read briefly a few evenings ago and touched on it, uh, I think that it's important for us to understand that Timothy was facing two major dilemmas in his time. He was facing, first of all, persecution from without and false doctrine from within. And friends, I want you to understand if you watch what's going on in our nation and throughout our cities right now, we are under attack, Christians. We used to live in America where America used to accept us. And then they used to tolerate us. Then they came into a season where they ignored us. And now America is attacking us. I'm talking about Christians. I'm not talking about conservative Christians. I'm not talking about liberal Christians. I don't put adjectives in front of words that the Bible doesn't put adjectives in front of. I'm not talking about black Christians. I'm not talking about white Christians. I'm not talking about red Christians. I'm not talking about brown Christians. I'm not talking about yellow Christians. I'm talking about. Okay, the front part of the church got it. Okay, I'm talking about Christians. And friends, there are moves on now to constantly erase what we are doing. You see, when the salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out, trodden under the foot of men. See, what America finds as as unnecessary, pretty soon it begins to become intolerant of it. When America labels something, that's unnecessary. Then they become intolerant. Once they become intolerant, then all of a sudden America begins to systematically remove it. The systematic removal of any people, people group, and or entity from society is called genocide. Genocide is the systematic removal of any people, group, or entity from society. 
And friends, Christianity is starting to be erased from our cities. And we need to ask the question, does the church have a voice in that process? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Nero is now a brutal emperor. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 1, 1 Timothy 2, 1. It says, therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications and supplications are petitions and continual prayers. Supplications are asking and entreating a need or a want from God. Prayers, that's addressing God. And Mark Verkler wrote a wonderful book years ago called Prayer is Communion with God. Intercession, praying for others, be given Giving thanks, be made for all men, for all kings, for all that are in authority, that you may lead a quiet and a peaceful life. For it is good for for a life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good. Why? Because God wants it to go well with all. And acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, friends, I've discovered that God wants all men to be saved. And do you know when we pray for those that are in authority? I don't find a place where the Bible tells us to complain about those that are in authority. Contrary to what you hear on Christian television. I stood up on my television program one time on in our city and they wrote me a letter on it said, don't do that ever again. But there was a guy that was uh, right before me that was just complaining about the government. No, I don't care who was in the in the White House or in the State House or in the city. He's just complaining, complaining. That's what he bought his airtime to do. And when I got on one Sunday and I said, when I opened up our program, I said, I'm getting ready to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. And that guy that you heard before me don't believe a thing that he said. <laughs> got a lot of letters, got a lot of letters on that one. Y'all, y'all pray for me, too. OK, put me on that list. Because uh, I don't take my medication sometime in the morning. So, sometime when I'm acting crazy at home, my wife said, did you take your medication? I said, I'm going to go get it right now. But it, 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 there's an anger that rises up when we do things in the name of the Lord that are not done from the word of God. And God says, for those who are in authority, we're supposed to pray for them. Why? Because God hears your prayers. And that we might lead a quiet and a peaceful life. He says, in all godly and reverence for this is good and accept on God. Why? Because it turns into evangelism. He said, because he desires none to perish, but all to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, see, God knew that even during the time of the early Christians and we've been laboring in the Old Testament. I think that it's important for us to hear that God knew that even in the New Testament, we would face hard times. Timothy was dealing with false doctrine from within and persecution from without. And yet God said, who's ever in leadership, you pray for him so that God can raise up one and set down another. How great is our God? I have missionaries that have worked in China. I have a lady that spent several years in China with the English Language Institute. And they go in and they teach English as a second language in China and do friendship evangelism, win people to Jesus and One of the stories that's told in China is that, you know, there have been many, many Christians in China for years. But when Mao took over, you all understand that Mao put all the Chinese Christians either to death or in jail. Mao also took some time and 
He wanted to drive all the foreign Christians out. And once he did that, he wrote the Chinese Manifesto of Communism, and he wanted to get it out. And he wrote these documents and sent his men out, and they came back and said, Mao, we got a problem. They said, what? He said, they said, there's no infrastructure to get this thing out. Every time we go so far, the barrier to train is too tough. And Mao said, I'm a dictator. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build roads all over China. He brought all these people in, and he had them build roads everywhere. And he said, if you don't work on roads, he put a gun to their head and shot their brains out. Roads now are built. He said, now go get it out. They went and they got it out. He then came back and said, how are you doing? They said, now we got another problem. The people can't read. And he said, man, people can't read. So he said, okay, we'll change that. Everybody's got to learn to read. So he taught everybody to read on his watch. Everybody became literate and he got it out there. And as they began to send out the, out the gospel of Mao, came back and they said, hmm, now we got another problem. What's that? Too many different languages. Every time we go 30 miles, there's a different language. He said, oh, I'll fix that. Everybody learns Mandarin. And if you don't want to learn Mandarin, put a gun to their head and kill them. Dictators can do that. Everybody learned Mandarin. Now he said, now get it out. Then they begin to get it out. And then they came back and said, now we got another problem. The Chinese alphabet is too long. He got together some of his scholars. He said, we can fix that. He said, let's shorten the alphabet so that we can reproduce our material fast. And they shortened the alphabet. When they checked with the missionaries and went back home, they said, how do you think the church has survived in China? They said, we couldn't survive in China. It was a very slow process because there weren't any roads. They said the people couldn't read. All of the infrastructure wasn't there. They said that they said the alphabet was too long. And they said, so we don't know how the church is going to do everything that hindered Christianity from spreading in China. Mao fixed it. And then he died. Don't tell me how great our God is. And after he died, when the next dictator came in, he opened up the jail cells and let all of those Christians and scholars who had been locked up out. Don't tell me how great God is. And what they found out when they went in jail before that, you had your Presbyterian missionary group over here and your Baptist missionary group over there and your Assemblies missionary group over here and your Reform missionary group over there. But when they got in jail, they found out that they weren't in jail because they were Methodist and Baptist and Reform. And Anglican, they found out they were in jail because of Christians. And when they got in jail, they started praying together and praying to God and praying for their nation. When they came out, now there's a church in China. And they said, we're not Reformed Christians and Baptist Christians and uh, and non-denominational Christians. We are Christians and we pray for our nation. And now you hear about the surge that's happening. You know, Asia is now sending missionaries to America. Because something happens when God's people pray. Look at me in Jeremiah 29 because I'm talking about building community. And one of the ways we build community is on the foundation of prayer. And and when God talked about Jerusalem and uh, when he talked to Jerusalem and to Samaria, Samaria was the capital of Israel in the north. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah in the south. When he talked to the time of the divided kingdom, because all of these systems failed, the prophets failed, the economic system failed, the governmental system failed, the sacred system failed. When God saw failure in the community, he said, if you guys don't turn around, I'm going to send you into captivity. Jeremiah prays and begins to prophesy to a people who are getting ready to go into exile. And here's what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah in 29, 7 says, seek the peace 
of the city. Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the peace of the city, which I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. He says, I'm prophesying you're going into captivity. He said, and when you get into captivity in all these various cities, whether in Assyria, in Babylon, and later on overrun by Persia, he says, seek God in that city. Seek the peace of that city, whether you are caused to be carried. And he says, and pray unto the Lord for it, that city you're carried into. For in its peace therein shall be your peace. The Amplified Version says of Jeremiah 29, 7, he says, seek. And he says that word seek means inquire for, require and request for the peace, the welfare of the city for which you have been caused to be carried away into captive. He says, pray to the Lord for it. For in the welfare of the city which you live, you will be your welfare. See, when you pray for your city, no matter where you're from, your peace is going to come. How many people in this sanctuary today, though we're located in Seekonk, Massachusetts, are not from Seekonk? You don't live in Seekonk. Stand up on your feet. Okay, stand up. Okay. Just a few native Seekonk people here. Okay. Now, of those that are standing, how many of you live in a city you were not born in. Raise your hands. All right. Now look around you because I want you to see what I see. All right. So put your hands down. Remain standing. Most of us in here worship in a city that we do not live in. Most of us live in a city that we've been carried to somehow that we were not born in. Now I don't care how much my wife loves Tuscaloosa, Alabama, when she was born. When the Ohio State University played Alabama in the national championship ride, she couldn't be in my house saying roll tide. She will be praying for Columbus because that's where she lives. Now, I know y'all think it's strange, but we have some strange folk in our city that pray for football games. Help them, Jesus. I know none of y'all do that up here in the Northeast, okay? But over and above football games and basketball games, we should be praying for our city. The city that God has carried you into. God says, seek God for that city, inquire of him, request for him, that city to be called the city of God. How should I pray? Pray that it's economic system, it's government system, it's sacred system, and the prophetic voice in that city does what God wanted to do so that our city might become the city of our God. He said, because when you pray for your city, no matter where you've been carried in, you may live in places like Paul Tuckett. I got that from Pastor Sam. <laughs> you might live in places like Barrington. You might live in Providence. 
You might live in a city that may be small because these are small states up in this region. But God has carried you into that place. And he said, and one of your kingdom responsibilities and covenant responsibilities is seek God, inquire for God, pray for God for that place where you've been carried into. Pray for this peace of that city because in its peace will be your peace. Seek God for your city. Seek God for your city. Seek God for your city. You can be seated. I think it's important for us to understand since we are very, very, very regional in this church. And this is not a local church. It's a regional church. We come from all over the region. We have to seek God not only for the city, but for the region. And to seek him and inquire him, we need to understand what's going on in the city so that we can know how to pray for the city. Never get overwhelmed by the enormous evil in the city. But seek God for that city. Let me give you an example, a case study. Acts chapter 8, turn there. Acts chapter 8, we see the church in Jerusalem now going through its growing pains. They've gone through a Christ formation, but the negative side that's not talked much about the church of Jerusalem is that the church of Jerusalem became a closed church. It became myopic. It wanted to be monolithic. It wanted to be monoethnic and monocultural. The church in Jerusalem only wanted folk in their church that were like them. They had to have several leadership meetings before they let Gentiles into their church and they still didn't see it. And that's because one of their key leaders struggled with letting folk in the church that were not like him. And his name was Peter. He takes that all the way over to the city of Galatia and is still wrestling with that issue. And Paul, when the gospel goes all the way out there, confronts Peter and even Barnabas gets carried away with that madness because it becomes closed, myopic. It becomes monoethnic, monocultural. It just doesn't want to let other people in. Is your church big enough to have some people in it different than yourself? Yeah. Friends, because it becomes closed, a lot of people use the Jerusalem model as a model for their church. And maybe that's why we're so divided as a church. And what happens is, is that they just won't get out and mix and mingle with other folks. Well, God has a way of blasting you out of your seat. Look at your neighbor and say, God will get you out of that seat. Oh yeah, he has a way of blasting you out of your seat. And so one of the things that God does is he lets some pressure come in called persecution. And all of a sudden, when persecution came in Jerusalem, people felt led to go somewhere. And this one little guy, his name is Philip. He goes down to a little city called Samaria. Acts chapter eight, verse number four. It says, therefore, those that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And Philip went down to Samaria, the city of Samaria, and preached Christ there. Now, why Samaria? Remember, during the time of the divided kingdom, Samaria had become the capital of Israel in the north. Jerusalem stayed the capital of Judah in the south. And the Samaritans, while they were forming Israel in the north, they mixed with some of the foreigners around. And the Jews began to hate the Samaritans. In fact, one time there was a civil war between the two. They hated them. Jesus went through there and sowed some seed in there. He won a woman to him at a well. So they were seed already in Samaria. And Philip then goes down to Samaria. He's a Hellenistic Jew. 
to solve the problem that took place in Acts chapter six, when the Hellenistic Jews were being missed in the daily distribution. All of a sudden, Philip goes down to Samaria and Philip went down to Samaria and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And notice this statement, great joy, great joy was in the city and there was great joy in the city and there was great joy in the city and there was great joy in the city where the demons in the city. Yeah, but they were being cast out. So great joy was in the city where people need to be saved. Yes, but when they were saved, there was great joy. In the city, the people need to hear and experience and see miracles. Yes. But when they came, there was great joy in the city. What would happen if when we were released from here tonight, we went everywhere in our city saying, I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways I build community is every place I go, I take the anointing of God, the power of God, the strength of God. And I take that wherever I go. And when I hear about a demon that's in somebody, I go and I address that thing, whether it's in your marketplace, because you don't have to do a lot of gyrations and dramatic stuff, uh, you know, to get a demon out of somebody. You can say, I bind you. Come out of them in Jesus name. Some of you need to arrive to work every now and then early. And drive those unclean spirits out of your workplace. And stop letting tormenting demons sit in your office place. Some of your people don't even know God. They don't know how to deal with demons. The government is not authorized to deal with demons. The mayor, the city council, God never uh, authorized to deal with demons. Mark 16 says, these signs shall follow them that believe. Lean on your neighbor, say, I'm a believer. First thing on the list, they shall cast out demons. Listen, stop trying to counsel demons. Stop saying, how many are you? How long you been there? Where'd you come from? No, the Bible doesn't tell you to interview demons. It says, cast them out in Jesus name. And if you know that you have a blood covenant with God, and if you know the power of the name, in my name, they shall cast out devils. Don't let some tormenting spirit drive you from your job. Don't let some tormenting spirit drive you from your community. When Philip saw a city that had been demonized and overrun by people that were demon possessed, he didn't move. He went there. He said, y'all need me. And he sought the welfare of that city. And one of the ways that we build community, we have to learn that we are the spiritual guardians. We are the watchmen of the wall. We are the ones that are the spiritual police. And we are the ones that are to preach the kingdom of God and salvation every place we go. The lame were healed. The paralyzed were raised. Unclean spirits were crying out. They were hearing and seeing the miracles that he was doing. Philip went this distance, 40 miles from Jerusalem. They haven't even made it that far because they got locked up in just doing church in Jerusalem. And God, during this time, is now releasing his church. He's releasing you to your schools. He's releasing you to your campuses. He's releasing you to your jobs so that great joy 
can come to your city because we are supposed to seek the welfare of our city wherever we are called. And we are to pray also for our city. How then do we pray? Though Jerusalem and Samaria were wicked places. Do you know that the prophets never lost their prophetic sense of what kind of city God wanted it to be? Do you know that even though they were wicked cities, the prophets never talked about their wickedness. They, uh, they, they prophesied that they were going to go into captivity because of their wickedness, but they never let them lose sight of what God said about their city. You see, faith always have to call things that be not as though they were. Look at me in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 21 because Isaiah, when he begins to call out and he begins to prophesy and God tells him to go and he tells him to prophesy. And when he tells him to prophesy to Judah and to Jerusalem, uh, these cities have now gone astray after other things. And here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 21. Uh, even when we have wicked cities, he says, how the faithful city has become a harlot. And it has and it, it was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers, he said it was the faithful city. And you know what he says, even though he can see that there's murder in the city, he can see that it's like a harlot is flirting with other gods. He can see that once it was full of righteousness and he still calls it a faithful city. In verse number 29, Isaiah 1, uh, 121 and then go down to verse number 26. Now 26, he says, I will restore your judges as of the first. It says, and your counselors as of the beginning and afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness and the faithful city. See, I believe that even though I look in the face of righteous of unrighteousness, even in my city, when I pray, I have to declare the word of the Lord. God, what do you want? You want my city, Isaiah one and twenty six. You want my city to be a faithful city. You want my city to be a righteous city. And Lord, though it looks like it's overwhelmed with wickedness, God, you declare that my city would be a righteous city. And Samaria and Philip's day was wicked, but he went there and he preached the gospel. And the word says a great joy came to the city. Look with me in Isaiah 26 now, because again, here was a city that the other text that we have looked at over the previous evenings and morning has said about this city, that this city was wicked. It was worse than Sodom because it had multiple sins. And yet in Isaiah 26 and verse number one, Isaiah 26, one now, he comes back and he says, and he declares in this city, he says, in the day, this song will be sung. In the land of Judah, we have a strong city. God has appointed salvation for our walls and bulwark. Open the gates in the righteous nation, which keeps truth, may enter, and you will keep him in perfect peace, whose minds have stayed on you. Because he trusts you that this this did not prevent them from going into captivity. But Isaiah says, he keeps on speaking a word of restoration. God, you're going to restore I've heard your pastor pray multiple times and review the history of this area. When Finney and other revivalists came through this area, we've heard prophetic words concerning this area, this northeast. We've heard that fire is supposed to burn out of here and that revival is going to come. But that means that there needs to be something ignited in the church. And you know what God is believing when he sends forth a prophetic word that somebody in the earth will come into agreement with it. 
even though he told them they were going into this captivity for seven years, 70 years after 70 years was over. Daniel started reading through the scrolls and he never forgot that God said, my city's supposed to be a faithful city. My city's supposed to be a righteous city. My city's supposed to be a strong city. And when 70 years was up, Daniel started praying because something happens when people pray for their city. And God says, the time is now up. He began to set himself to pray for 21 days. He prayed and he prayed and he kept on pressing. And you know what? God sent the answer the first day. But there are spirits in the atmosphere that tried to resist the answer from coming. So God sent a strong angel to release it from the prince of Persia. And he come and said, Daniel, the first day you prayed. Everybody say the first day you prayed. God heard you, but then he had to press through and that's called supplication. Just stay on it and stay on it until something changed. You say, how long do I pray until something changed? How long do I pray until something changed? How long do I pray until something changed? It's the way you pray for your sons and daughters. It's the way you pray for your neighbors and for your friends. It's the way we pray for everybody. We pray until something changed in our church. We pray for Frank every week. We say we pray for Frank and then we go out and we bring Frank to church. I was praying for Frank so much. One of our newcomers came in and said, why are we praying for Frank every Sunday morning? I said, oh, I haven't explained this for a while. We pray for our friends, our relatives, our associates, our neighbors and our kids. Frank. Friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, kids. Frank. Write it down. <laughs> Friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, kids. Frank. I know they're children, but the K, you know, Frank. And so, pray for friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, kids. And several times a year, we, we, every Sunday we pray for Frank. And then several times a year, we go out to our, our friends in our church and we say, hey, friends in church, this week go out and invite Frank to church. <laughs> go out and invite your friends, your relatives, your associates, your neighbors and your kids to the house of the Lord. Tom Rainer, one of my favorite uh, authors in evangelism, who talks about winning the unchurch and winning lost people next door. He's a little bit different as a statistician, Southern Baptist statistician that looks at stats of Christians coming to the Lord into the kingdom of God. A little bit different than George Barna, Tom Rainer interviews and converses with people that have come over the bridge from the world into the church. Whereas Barna just goes out and he kind of interviews everybody. So he gets a little bit different angle on his statistic. Whereas Tom Rainer said, rather than interviewing everybody, he said, I want to talk to folks who have they made the journey over the bridge to the church. He found out in one of his early books, I read that 85 people that come into the house of the Lord come to the house of the Lord from the world into the church because somebody invited them. The question we must ask, if 85% of people that are coming from the world to the church come from the world to the church because somebody invited them, when was the last time you invited someone to church? There's something that happens in corporate worship. They step into an atmosphere. They see that you're not the only crazy person in Seacock. They say, boy, there's a bunch of them around here. The Holy Ghost drops down with a corporate anointing, not just your individual grace, which is overwhelming. 
Even 1 Corinthians 14 that describes New Testament worship says when the Lord is present and when there's a prophetic atmosphere to send and there's prophecy that's coming forth, even if an unbeliever comes in, he could say of a truth, God is in this place. And we bring Frank to church, but it's not before we pray. The beginning of our year, we give out two lists in our bulletin, first month of the year. And one of them is a Frank list, F-R-A. N K and we give one for you to fill out for you to keep in your Bible to pray for another one. We put in two baskets on our altar and when people come in all week long, they pull out a list of those and they sit down in the chair. Some of them 15 minutes, some of them an hour, some of them an hour and a half and they just pray over those names. You know what prayer does? I like my picture of prayer. Pastor John is that prayer builds a road from the throne of God to the issue I'm praying on so that God can have intervention on that area that I'm praying on. Amen. And then we tell them to do like Philip. Now go out there and invite Frank to church. Tom Rayner says 85% of the people that come to church come. Because somebody invite them. Part of my conversation with people. You want to bring great joy to the city and pray for your city? Prayer without action does nothing. When you meet people, ask them what's their name. Christians have to become friendly again. Practice neighborliness. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Practice neighborliness and ask people when you meet them, what's your name? I like to ask them. Secondly, just three questions. What do you do? People love to talk about what they do. My third question, where do you worship? It's non-threatening. Folks will always tell you something. I'll tell you, I'm not worshiping anywhere. That's an invitation for me to say, you need to come worship with me. And here's my statement. We will do you good on your journey. Look at your neighbor and say, come worship with me. This is practice right now. Say, we will do you good on your journey. I said, look at somebody now. Go ahead. If y'all won't do this in church, I know you won't do it at work. Say, come worship with me. We will do you good on your journey. Look at somebody across the aisle and say, come worship with me. We will do you good on your journey. Push the person in front of you. Tell them, come worship with me. Tell them, we'll do you good on your journey. Tell them, don't you ever touch me again, okay? <laughs> Listen, ask them, where do they worship? And they say, come worship with us. Sometimes people will tell you. When I met Nia, she said, I worshiped at New Salem when I was in the sea. I know her pastor. And usually what I do is what I did with her. I said, I know your pastor. Her pastor is going to preach our leadership summit the first night this year. And so I said, I know your pastor. He's part of our dedication team when we dedicated our building. And if somebody knows the current pastor, the current pastor, <laughs> then they're off grounds. I'm not supposed to evangelize other Christians. The idea of evangelism, not to get people from other churches into my church. It's a reach lost people, unchurched people. One time I met a fellow and I said, what is your name? He told me, what do you do? He told me, I said, where do you worship? And he said, uh, 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 I go to Pilgrim Baptist Church. I said, really? I said, and my next question when they tell me to go to church, who's the pastor there? He said, uh, uh, Pastor Mitchell. I said, hmm, that's good. I said, you know, Pastor Mitchell died 10 years ago. When, <laughs> when was the last time you were at Pilgrim Baptist Church? 
then he became fair game. Come worship with us. We will do you good on your journey. Listen to me, friends. The church needs to get back to praying for its city again. Say, how long do we pray? Look at me in Isaiah chapter 62, please. Listen, we taught this to our young people a few months, uh, summers ago. And in Isaiah 62, one, listen, Isaiah said he knew what the prophetic words you're going to go into captivity for seven years. But here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 62, one, he says, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace for Jerusalem's sake. Uh, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Look at your neighbor and say, you just can't shut me up after tonight. Go ahead and tell him. <laughs> Hallelujah, somebody. Tell him, you just can't shut me up after tonight. This man know that he was wrestling in a wicked, bad city, but he just said, if I can use this term, you just can't shut me up. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. You just can't shut me up. Even when I've been here, I've been praying for my city as well as your city. When I get back, I'll concentrate on my city. And what would happen between tonight, Tuesday night and Sunday morning, resurrection morning, we went out and we developed a frank list and prayed from now unto them for friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, and kids. And then somewhere between Good Friday and Saturday, we went out and invited Frank to church. Come to church with me. I'll come pick you up. Take them out to a restaurant when you get finished. Bribe them if you have to. <laughs> Say, I'll take you out to Easter dinner when we get finished. And friends, bring them to the house of the Lord. What would happen in our churches if everybody brought Frank to church this Sunday? I'd like to suggest you when we give an altar call and these altars are filled and people are weeping, folks start screaming when we give altar calls in our church. Somebody will scream out and say, yes, yes. And our folks get vocal and they get the monsters. If not, say, is this somebody you know? They on my Frank list. I'm scratching them off right now. There's great joy in the city. Great joy when people are coming to the Lord, but that is not apart from prayer and action. See, I know that this man, Philip, was a man of prayer, but he also had to go to the city. And I think that it's important. You see, I believe that you and I need to understand that our worship and our prayers must go up to God for our city. Look with me in Revelation chapter five as I wrap this up tonight, because in the Revelation chapter five, I think it's critical that John sees this vision of the throne of God. And when he sees this vision of the throne of God, he sees these seals that are about to be open. And as he sees these seals that are about to be open in the Revelation five, the Revelation five and verse number eight, he gets a glimpse of this heavenly worship. And he said, heavenly worship was twofold in this incident. He says, now in five, eight of the revelation, he says, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. He says, each having a harp and golden bowls full of odors, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. He had a harp on one hand and he had a bowl in the other. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy 
to take the scroll. And the word worthy means that you deserve, you desire, and you expect all the praise, all the thanksgiving, and all the worship. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. For you were slain and you redeemed us to our God by your blood out of every nation, tongue, people, and nation. And it says, and you have made us kings and priests unto our God and we shall reign. You see in the revelation, my final point for praying for our city, if we're going to build community, is that here we get a glimpse of heavenly worship. And even in heavenly worship, the worship around this throne, he is the center of the worship. But the worshipers, when he sees these living creatures alone, they begin to declare, you deserve all the power, all the riches, all the wisdom, all the strength, all the honor, all the glory, and all the blessing. The word worthy is that he deserves all of the glory, all of the honor, and all the praise. He expects all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. He he desires all the glory, all the honor, and the praise. You see, our praises are our threefold response to God. We give him thanksgiving because he is good. Psalm 107 says, oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good. Thanksgiving is a response to God's goodness. Would you look at your neighbor and say, he's been good. You know what? The goodness of the Lord is what led us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that keeps us and sustains us. Out of his goodness comes his love. Out of his love comes his mercy. He is good. We give him not only our thanksgiving, but we give him our praise. And Psalm 96, 4 says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We praise the greatness of God. We sang how great is our God today. And that means that there is nothing too hard with him. That person that's on drugs that you think God can do nothing with, nothing's too hard for him. How great is our God. That one that's struggling with gender identification confusion is there anything too hard for our God listen that one that has gone through a divorce and leaving their family leaving their life leaving their wife leaving their children is there anything too hard for God we had a marriage retreat one time and begin to declare the greatness of God and couples that had the divorce hearing already set got reconciled in a weekend is there anything too hard for our God We praise God because of his greatness, but we worship him because of his holiness. You see, Psalm 29, verse number two said, worship him in the beauty of holiness. So praise is a response to his greatness. Thanksgiving is a response to his goodness. And worship is a response to his holiness. He is holy. He is holy. He is holy in the highest level of holiness is when you and I present our body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God which is our reasonable service. See, we worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, but they just didn't have a bowl full, a harp where we worship God. They had a bowl that was full of incense and the incense were the prayers of the saints. See, Psalm 41, two and Ray, Pastor Ray, you can come. Psalm 42, one notes Psalm 41, verse two. It says, let my prayers be set before you as an incense, 41.2. And the lifting of my hands as an evening sacrifice. New Living Translation says, accept my prayers as incense offered to you and my upraised hands as an evening offering. I believe that at the end of our day, there's something about Letting an evening prayer go up as incense before the Lord. 
You know, the incense in the Old Testament was four different elements. Those four elements are found in Exodus 30, 34 and following. 30, 34. That incense that went into that prayer was first of all an incense called stacta. It was a gum rosin that just perpetually flowed out of a little tree that grew in Palestine. And in Exodus 30, 34, it said that that stack that was always just oozing out of a tree. And I believe that our prayer ought to be quick prayers. They ought to be something that calls you to pray. Sometimes your prayers are what some of the theologians that call jaculatory prayers, which means quick prayer. You know that when you sigh, oh God, that's a prayer. Some of the old saints didn't have all the revelation and insight that we have, but they would say things like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Do you know that's a prayer? When Peter sunk in that water, he said, Lord, save me. Do you know that that was a prayer? See, the effectiveness of prayer is not the length of prayer. It's the intimacy and the faith and the heart and the desperation that comes. That's why I like to hear children pray because they don't pray real long, but you can feel the heart. Like to hear youth pray because it may not be real long and it may not be theologically correct, but you can feel the heart. But they're quick to pray. And friends, our incense must be that spontaneity prayer. I can't find a time where you can't give a thanksgiving and a prayer to God. When my wife and I sit down on an aircraft, we join hands and say, God, give us a safe flight. When we hit turbulence, sometimes we say, Jesus. Quick prayer. Let my prayer be sent forth as an incense, stacked up, spontaneity. When we land safely, we say, thank you, Jesus. Oh, I've learned how to give those stacked the prayers, quick prayers. When your thing goes around on the luggage and your luggage comes by, and you pull off that first bag and then you're standing there. If I've been there waiting and waiting and you're waiting and you say, Lord Jesus, help my bag to come through. And then when it comes through that little flap and you go, thank you, Jesus. I found out that you got to bring your stacta to the Lord and don't miss opportunities for prayer summits with the Lord. It was also something called Anka and your Anka is your depth in God because that Anka was a shellfish that was an incense. And what they did was they crushed it. And listen, your prayer can go and your incense can go no higher than your depth in God. And the way we get deep in God is with our personal experiences with him as well as our depth in the word. Bring your Anka to the Lord. Put it on the fire and let it be offered up. There was something called galbanium and that came through crushing. It was a branch that was cut off and straightened up and dried out. And then it was crushed. And some of us are coming through some crushing moments right now. This economic downturn that happened five years ago. Some people are just now coming up out of it and they were crushed. A lot of people became poor that didn't expect to be poor. A lot of people became homeless that didn't expect to be homeless. A lot of folks who have done everything right that America told them to do. Lost homes and jobs. But you know what? Out of that, they didn't lose their incense. They let that crushing turn into a new level of worship. And sometimes when you're bruised and battered, man, don't avoid worship. We need your galbanium in the worship experience. Bring your galbanium because sometimes we need to let our tears be mixed with our worship. You see, in your tears, there's something called salt that reminds you of your salt covenant with God. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, when you bring the stack of the alcohol, 
uh, the, the Stacta, the Yonka, the Galbanium. They said blended together with something called frankincense. And frankincense is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ because, see, I can have spontaneity and depth and brokenness, but if Jesus doesn't get in the mix of it, I can be overwhelmed. But you see, when my heart is overwhelmed, he leads me to the rock. Sometimes I don't know what to do with the church that I lead, but I go to the rock of my salvation. I go to the stone that the builder rejected. And the Lord begins to speak to me. Let my prayer be sent forth as an incense, says Psalm 41. Two, and the lifting of my hands as an evening sacrifice. Could everyone just offer up the evening sacrifice to the Lord? And begin to just pray for your city right now. Pray for your city. The city where you dwell, the city where you worship. God, we bring before you the city of our dwelling. We bring before you the city of our worship tonight. And Father, we know to have great joy in our city and the build community. Father, we need to pray for the city. Every place that we've been carried into tonight, Father, we are to seek the peace for that city. For in its peace, we shall find peace. And if we pray for it, Father, in its peace, we will find peace. Father, some of us came from cities, from Nigeria and from Kenya and from Tanzania and Uganda and from Ghana and from Senegal. Father, some of us came from places, uh, Father, uh, Father, all over the place, Father, in Central America, uh, Father, in Mexico and in Ecuador today, Father, in Lima, Peru. And Father, many of us came from cities all over the world today, Father. We've come from Asia today, Father. We've come from Canada. And oh God, we pray for the peace of those cities. But today, Father, we pray for the city of our dwelling. And Father, we say, let our city be a faithful city. Let our city be a righteous city. Let our city be a city of God. And Father, for Zion's sake, we will not keep still. For Zion's sake, we will not keep silent until you have made our city a praise in the earth. Oh God, you just can't shut us up. We'll call upon you. And it's our pleasure to bring our harp and our bowl to the worship experience. And Father, we'll call upon your name because you are worthy to be praised. So shall we be safe from our enemy. Father, save not only our friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, and friends, but Father, change our cities. We call upon you. If you could do it in China, if you could do it in Jerusalem, if you could do it in Samaria, you can do it right here. Do, Lord. Set down in our city. And rest in our city that our children might experience God. And we thank you for it now in Jesus name. Now, Father, use us as intercessors, gatekeepers and watchmen. And Father, for this, we give you thanksgiving. For this, we give you praise in Jesus name. And all of God's people say it. Amen. Amen. Now, praise God that he's going to do something in your city. That your city will be called the righteous city. That your city will be called the city of our God and we'll build community.